The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Amen. Amen. Thanks as always, Pastor Matt. It's good to be with you. We had hoped to be together in person this week, but... um, You can't control the smoke sometimes and all that 2020 is bringing our way. So I'm glad, I'm thankful for technology this morning that we can still gather online. Uh, We're going to be in Acts chapter 4, primarily in Acts chapter 5 this morning. So like Pastor Matt said, you can grab your Bibles and head there. Let me pray for us and we will jump right in because we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Father, uh, we thank you this morning that you are with us. It's not as though you need it, but I want to tell you, you have permission this morning to be God, to have the loudest voice in the room, to um, mold and shape me and our church as you would see fit, to speak your truth. Uh, We want to get beneath your word this morning. We want to humble ourselves before it. We want to be slow to speak and quick to listen before your word. And so, Father, we give you that permission this morning. We even invite it and ask it. Uh, We thank you that you choose to demonstrate your love for us and that while we are sinners, you gave your life for us this morning, that the gospel is our roots and our hope this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are in the fifth week in the book of Acts this morning. It's been an incredible series as we look at how the church took root after Jesus' death and how it grew exponentially and mightily in the face of opposition. Last week, we looked at Acts chapter 4 on the heels of an incredible miracle, Peter and John healing a lame man, thousands of people coming to faith, proclaiming the gospel boldly in the face of persecution. The church continues to grow in number. We've seen that to this moment, the church has reached 5,000 men, which means there's probably, counting women and children, closer to 15 or 20,000 people in this new movement right now that the authorities, the Jewish authorities, are greatly threatened by this new movement. And we're seeing that persecution of the church is only empowering the boldness of the church and pushing them forward. So right now, the church stands victorious in this moment where we join up at the end of Acts chapter 4. The church is standing victorious on the other side of the first persecution it's ever experienced. 5,000 people have been added to its number. And what is the church's response in that moment? What do the apostles do? They go back to their people, we read in Acts chapter 4. They go back to their people, and they pray for more boldness. Uh, Acts four twenty nine. Now, Lord, consider their threats. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Isn't it interesting that in the face of persecution, the response of the early church is not to recoil. It is not to draw back in fear. It is to move forward in greater boldness. And we see in verse chapter 4, verse 31, that after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. God's presence showed up. He honored and blessed their prayer. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. God answers. He gives the church greater boldness in in response to the persecution and and opposition that the church is meeting. And here today, in verses 32 and 33, at the end of Acts chapter 4, we get a snapshot. We get a picture of the church as it is in this moment. And what we're going to see in this snapshot of this early church is that in this moment, the church is a pure church. It is a set-apart church for God's purposes. Let's see what that church looked like. Verse 32 and 33. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So in this snapshot we get in in verses 32 and 33, we see that the church is one in heart. God has unified their heart. The Holy Spirit has radically unified the heart of the church. This means they have a common affection for God. And that common affection for God is manifesting itself in a common horizontal affection for one another. There's great love present in the church. He also says they're one in mind, meaning this. They have a common understanding of the same truth. And they have a common missional focus on pushing that truth forward into Jerusalem. 
We read in verse 33 that with great power, the apostles continued to testify. Testify to what? They were testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They were saying Christ raised himself from the dead. God resurrected Christ from the dead. And we're testifying that this is the truth that they are focused on. And it's being proclaimed with power. They're unified around it. And this oneness of heart and this oneness of mind that the church is experiencing is manifesting itself how? Well, we see here that it's manifesting itself in radical, self-sacrificing generosity and care. Radical, self-sacrificing generosity and care. In this snapshot of the church, we see a radically generous church. We read in verse 33 that God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. What was at work in them? God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, every single one of them, that there were no needy persons among the early church. There was not one person in this massive movement at this point that was in need. That's a, that's a big statement, and let me explain why. Many who had joined this early church... When Pentecost had happened and the church had been born, were visiting Jerusalem for Pentecost, meaning they had left homes. And they were visiting for the festival of Pentecost. It was an Israelite festival. Thousands of Jews would visit from all around. And many of them heard the gospel proclaimed through Peter and were radically saved. And they joined the number in the church. And we have to think, at this point, this is the only church that exists. There's no other Christian church. This is it. You want a church? There's not a community church on the corner in your neighborhood. This is the church. And so what they choose to do if they're a part of this church is these thousands of people have chosen to just simply stay put. They've left homes. They've left families. They've left inheritances behind in leaving their family to join this church. These people would have been considered, because many of them have walked away from the dominant religion of Judaism, they would have been considered religious apostates. They, they would have walked away from careers. They would have lost all social clout. They would have been uprooted from everything that had defined their life before in order to be a part of the church. In a word, there were many people by staying in Jerusalem, who had made themselves very vulnerable, very much in need. So how can it be that in a moment, in a church where people have literally uprooted their lives and left everything behind, that they, there is not one person whose life is marked by need? Well, the answer is in verse 33. God's grace was powerfully at work at them. And how was it at work? Well, those who had much were being led and filled by the Holy Spirit to give sacrificially to meet the needs of those with little. How? By laying their resources at the apostles' feet. This is a small picture of what we do every week when we give to the church. You come in faith and you lay your gift at the feet of the pastors and elders, and the money and the funds are used to establish to the church, to meet the needs of the city around us, and to move the gospel forward. These needs were being met. Church, one of the surest signs that we have corporately as a church and individually as people understood the gospel that is working itself through us in our church is that we will become a radically generous people. We will have eyes to see and feet to run towards the needs in our body and the needs in our city. Why? Well, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? The gospel is simply that when we were spiritually in need, when we had no means of our own, when we were vulnerable, God saved us by becoming vulnerable on our behalf, taking our weakness upon himself, moving towards us in grace and mercy so that he could empower and lift us up. The gospel starts with us recognizing that we were spiritually vulnerable. And God chose to lift us up. And church, if, if that hasn't worked through us in some way to where we now recognize that because we were met when we were weak, we are now pushed out to meet those needs around us. If the gospel hasn't worked through us in that way, it's not working through us as it should. It's a cognitive gospel, but it hasn't gotten to our hearts. And the gospel here has gotten to the hearts of the early church. Just how radical and all-in were they in this generosity? Verse 34. For from time to time, those who owned houses or land sold them. From time to time. They brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. 
Now, this is extreme. Uh, If you're anything like me, the thought of selling your home or your most valuable commodity in life, just giving it away to the church, selling your home not not to build liquidity or buy another bigger home, but just giving it away, that strikes your ears as so heavenly that it's outrageous, right? Like, no way. But, and and I, me too. But that's the kind of grace that was working in the church here. That's the kind of power that was filling the church here. That's the kind of mercy ministry that is filling the church at this moment. And if anything, this was a more radical act then than it would be now if someone was to do this. There were no 401ks at this time. There were no Roth IRAs. There were no banks on every corner. Your wealth was your land at this point in time. Your inheritance was your land. Your security was your land. And we read, though, that this happened. It wasn't an everyday occurrence. It happened from time to time. From time to time. Which means this. In the early church, gifts like this of selling of land or giving away of property for the needs of those around you, it would have been public knowledge in the church. These gifts wouldn't have been done in secret. Those who did acts of generosity like this would have been celebrated. They would have been honored. They would have been thanked in the church, and rightly so, give honor where honors due. Verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Here we meet Barnabas. Did you know his real name was Joseph? Barnabas was just a nickname. Apparently, he was such an encouraging guy that the church said, your name needs to change. (laughs) You are no longer Joseph. You are son of encouragement, Barnabas. Barnabas becomes a big figure in the book of Acts. He becomes an important figure in the book of Acts. In chapter 11, 24 of Acts, we read that Barnabas was a good man, that he was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. In chapter 14, verse 14, we read that Barnabas was, Barnabas is listed in that verse as an apostle with the Apostle Paul. Now we know that that's small a apostle because in order to be an apostle, capital A, you would have had to have been with Jesus or be commissioned by Jesus. But the Greek word apostel simply means missionary or sent one. Barnabas was a good man full of faith who had given his life to the gospel, to the proclaiming of the gospel. Proverbs 22.1 says that a good name is more to be desired than great riches. Barnabas embodied that verse. Barnabas had a good name in the church. He was a godly man full of the Holy Spirit, and his first act that we come into contact with in the Scripture is in Acts 4.36 as he sells a field, some land. And he brings the money, and as the early church did, he laid it at the apostles' feet. This is an incredible, sacrificial, spirit-led act of generosity and care. Barnabas would have been known and honored in the church, and that's important to understand for where we're headed. In this snapshot that we see here of the church up to this moment, as we reach the end of Acts chapter 4, the church up to this point is a pure church. It's marked by purity. That purity is manifesting itself in a mission that's moving forward in power, and it's manifesting itself in integrity and purity. It's, this church is set apart for God's purposes. And the power within the church was directly linked to the purity it was experiencing. We'll get more on that later, but we need to understand that the church's power in this moment, as the Spirit moves, is directly linked to the purity it was experiencing. And we get to Acts 5 now. Let's read the first three verses. Acts 5, 1 through 3. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property, just like Barnabas. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? As the fifth chapter, this fifth act in the book of Acts begins, a new element enters the church. Up till now, one primary element that has always been a part of the church, every church ever since has been lacking. You know what it is? Did you catch it? 
It's sin. (laughs) In Acts chapter 5, sin enters the church. And and let's just pause for a moment. Uh, Because God's response to this first sin recorded in the early church, it's going to shock some of us. It's, it's going to stop us dead in our tracks. It's, it's going to push up against us and press against some of our sensibilities about who God is and how God interacts with his creation. I'll be honest with you. This has been a difficult week of sermon prep for me. I have wrestled and squirmed as I prepared this sermon. But I want to say this as we unfold this passage. Where our sensibilities or expectations of God and Scripture conflict conflict with the actual account of Scripture and what God's Word lays before us. It is not God's Word that needs to be moved or shifted or changed or softened. It is our sensibilities and our impressions that God's Word needs to form. And this is one of the beauties of walking through the Bible verse by verse and and teaching through verse by verse Scripture. It brings us to accounts and passages that we might otherwise uh, just passively brush away from, even subconsciously. But when we preach verse by verse through the Bible, we come square in the face with passages that are challenging, but they're there for our good. There's something about God that we need to learn in them. So Ananias and Sapphira are wealthy members of the early church. They're they're landowners. And there's a big clue to what's going on here in Acts chapter 5, verse 1. The text says that they also sold a piece of property. That also tells us that there's at least some kind of link here between what's going on in their hearts and what they're after and their actions and what Barnabas has done in his generosity. Just like Barnabas, they gave. So picture them. They've been out socializing. The church is meeting in Solomon's colonnade. They've been hearing people talking about Barnabas, what Barnabas did, about how amazing his gift was, perhaps in conversation even with Barnabas. They're seeing people come up to Barnabas just with gratitude. Thank you for meeting my needs, Barnabas. And as this is happening, as wealthy people, something starts rising up in their hearts. They want in in on that action. (laughs) They want to be thought generous. They want to be honored in the way they're seeing Barnabas honored, and so they devise a plan together. They decide to sell a piece of property and lay a portion of the money for the sale at the apostles' feet. But they secretly, privately decide to keep some of it to line their own pockets. In short, they decide to lie, to pretend, to become hypocrites. There's a scene in Jurassic Park this brings to mind for me. Uh, There's a scene in Jurassic Park, maybe the most famous scene in Jurassic Park. Uh, Dr. Grant, the the main protagonist, and and Ian Malcolm are in one SUV, and in another SUV, two children, little Tim and Lex, are being attacked by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. You may be able to picture the scene. The power's gone out. The fences are down. And a Tyrannosaurus Rex is attacking. And in her panic, Lex uh, grabs a flashlight and starts flashing it around. And Dr. Grant is an expert paleontologist. He's an expert on dinosaurs. And so he knows, as we watch the movie, we find out he knows that T-Rexes can only see motion. They can only see movement. If you stand still, they can't see you. And so he's yelling from his SUV, Lex, put the flashlight away. And he sees that they're about to be devoured. And so his integrity of study gives him a plan. He takes out a flare. He gets out of the SUV. He waves the flare to divert the attention of the dinosaur away. And he throws the flare off and stands dead still. And it works. His integrity of study has given him the ability to deal with this moment. It works, and and if it ended there, maybe the T-Rex ends and we never get the most iconic scene in Jurassic Park. But Ian Malcolm, we find out, is glory hungry. (laughs) He does not have the integrity of study to keep him safe before the Tyrannosaurus Rex that Dr. Grant has. And so what does he do? He grabs a flare, and foolhardy Dr. Malcolm runs in front of the T-Rex, starts waving the flare around, throws it, and continues to run. And he's thanked by the Tyrannosaurus Rex by the loss of his legs. What happened there? Dr. Grant saw, Dr. Malcolm saw something in Dr. Grant that he wanted to be true in himself, but he didn't have the integrity to sustain it before the T-Rex. This is similar to what's happened here. Why lie? Why pretend? Why give yourself to hypocrisy? 
in this moment if you're Ananias and Sapphira. They become actors in a situation they can't control, just like Dr. Malcolm. The idols of their hearts are being exposed here. Barnabas gave freely. He gave freely with joy. Why? Because he was free. God had freed his heart from the things money gave him. Money was no longer his God. God was his God. Identity, power, honor, and security were not things he was looking for from God, uh, from money, but from God. Ananias and Sapphira, on the other hand, by their actions, show and reveal to us that they were still getting security, honor, identity from money. What Barnabas was getting from God, they were still looking to get from money. Money still had a hold on their heart. In verse 3, we read Peter's response, which is just amazing. Somehow, the Holy Spirit gives Peter insight, and he responds. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Satan has filled their hearts. Satan has pushed them. He's influenced them. Up until this point, as we've read in Acts, Satan's schemes against the church have been external attack and persecution. But we've seen that those attacks have failed. If anything, they've backfired. They've pushed the mission forward. They've emboldened the church. They've added more to their number. So here we see Satan getting more crafty, more subtle. He moves his attack inward. He adds to persecution from without persecution from within, temptation and sin. Is it not true throughout church history that historically persecution has only pushed the mission of the church forward, that the church thrives in the margins, and that the greatest collateral and damage that has been reaped on the church has come from within through the devastating effects of sin and the church giving in to temptation? Now notice here that Satan simply plays on the pre-existing idols of Ananias and Sapphira's hearts. Their idol is significance. Their idol is significance. They want to be seen as significant in the culture, in the church. They want to have a place of honor. Their idol is not money. Money is their means of achieving their idol, which is significance. When Satan attacks and tempts church, which he does to all of us, corporately and individually, he's wise. He looks for our weak spots. He identifies our idols. He plays on our pre-existing temperaments and bents. He plays on the idols of our hearts. This is why a huge part of resisting the devil is being aware of our weaknesses, being aware of the places, the cracks in our character that he would seek to attack. But what specifically was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? Chapter 5, verse 4 gives us an interesting insight. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold, Peter says? Didn't the land you have belong to you before it was sold? And after it sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? It was yours to do with what you wanted. What made you think of doing such a thing? Have you not lied just to human beings, but to God? See, the sin here is not that they didn't give all of the money from the sale. That was their prerogative. They could have made that choice and been perfectly in line. The sale was not that they sold. The sale was not that they didn't give all the money. The sin is not in keeping. The sin is in lying. They misrepresented the truth. See, here's what's so interesting. Sin always makes us fools. It's what it does. It makes us foolish. It's a self-defeating cycle. Ananias and Sapphira so easily could have accomplished everything they wanted and been generous if they had been content to be seen as who they actually were. If they had simply sold and given part and said, here's part, the church would have celebrated their generosity. At least in part, they would accomplish their goal of being, of being thought as generous, but they don't just want to be seen as generous. Their sin of pride and significance has pushed them out, not just to want to be seen as generous, but to be want to be seen as, as generous as Barnabas. They want the honor Barnabas has without the character Barnabas has. They want the honor Barnabas has without the gift that Barnabas was willing to give, which leaves only one option, to become foolish, to pretend, to give in to hypocrisy. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to be seen as giving for God's glory, but they cared only for their own glory. They wanted to be seen as caring to those in need, but they cared only for their own reputation. In short, they were hypocrites, and we need to recognize this morning that hypocrisy in the church is no small thing in the eyes of God. 
and perhaps even more so, it's no small threat to the integrity of the church that would fill the church with the presence of God that would lead to the power of God. Verse 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. The young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Deep breath. You know, we read this and we think to ourselves, well, I do at least, that seems a bit harsh. (laughs) Just a bit harsh. So they lied. A lot of people have lied. Peter himself lied. He denied Christ, in Christ's moment of greatest trial, three times to a little girl. What's the big deal? But church, to to let ourselves think this way about their sin is to miss the heart of Scripture regarding the gravity of sin in general and of our own sin in particular as it is held up against the holiness of God. Ananias and Sapphira, if they show us anything, show us that sin is serious and no sin is small. All sin is serious and no sin is small. And I just want to pause. I don't even have this in my note, but I just feel led to say in this moment, if you have come to Story City Church at all for a long period of time, you know that the steady diet that we feed here is the gospel of grace. It's the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners, and that's where we're going to land this morning as well. We don't stand before God trying to earn anything this morning. But there are times, I think, in Scripture where God says, eat your vegetables. (laughs) Look at this part of my character and let it fit into the meta-narrative, the grander narrative of who I actually am. And that's what this is. There are times where we need to feel the gravity and weight of our sin in very real ways that would actually build us up, that would actually bring greater joy, that would actually push us into Christ in more meaningful ways. And I, where we're going to land this morning, actually empower us to be a distinct, countercultural, vibrant church in a city that desperately needs one. Integrity is important to God, and it's important in the church. But all sin is serious, and no sin is small. The Bible is full. It's full of seemingly small sins that God chooses to take very seriously. A few examples out of the many. Uh, The first sin, Adam and Eve, they eat a fruit. They just grab a fruit off a tree and take a bite, and everything, sin is unleashed on the world. Lot's wife, simply running from Sodom, chooses to turn back and just take a glance at the city as it burns, and she's turned into a pillar of salt. Moses, God's man in the wilderness, God's righteous servant, strikes a rock in anger one time, and because of it, he's banned from the reward of entering the promised land after years of wandering in the wilderness. Uzzah, there's a story to go read, is a man commissioned to carry the ark of God, and the ark falls off the ox that's carrying it, and he simply reaches out to catch the ark, and he dies on the spot. What's going on here? Why are these seemingly trivial acts judged so harshly by God? What's he trying to show us? Well, the gravity of sin does not lie in the action that's committed, but in who it's committed against. The gravity of sin is in who it's committed against, and all sin is first and foremost committed not against fellow men or women, but against a holy God. Verse 3, we see Peter say, You have lied to the Holy Spirit, not to me. 
Verse four, he says, you've not just lied to human beings, but to God. In verse nine, we read that Sapphira has tested the Holy Spirit. In Psalm 51.4, David's great moment of confession in the scripture as he confesses that he's committed adultery and murder, he says, against you and you only have I sinned, God. Against you only have I done what's evil in your sight. All sin is sin against God. And where we've become comfortable with our sin, where I've become comfortable with my sin, I told you I squirmed this week. Where we think our sin is small enough to ignore or simply try to put in the rearview mirror and distance ourselves from, but never truly find ourselves able to do so. Where we do these things, we betray a low view of God, of God's holiness, of who he is, of his character. And I promise you this, because it's throughout scripture, if we could just get a small glimpse, a momentary glimpse into the true character and holiness of God, we would think about our sin differently. We would see its gravity. Holiness means simply to be set apart. To be holy is to be distinct. It's to be used for special purposes. There's a distinction between holiness and purity. Purity is simply a neutral state. It's an undefiled state. Holiness is an active state. It's an electric state. It's filled with goodness, something powerful. It's set apart. It's used for special purposes. And God is holiness. In fact, holiness is the primary defining attribute of God. God is loving. Yes, he is. But God's love is a holy love. God is gracious. Amen. Yes. But his grace is a holy grace. It's set apart. And when God is present in a church or in a person, his presence comes in the form of a holy spirit. It is a holy presence. In Isaiah 6, we get a picture of God that's familiar to many of you if you've been in church at all. But we see God, the prophet Isaiah sees God seated on a throne, and he's surrounded by two angels that are fearful creatures in and of themselves. And we're told that they are crying out, holy, 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 back and forth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. One angel yells it, and then the other angel yells it, and God sits between them in his holiness. We're told that the train of his robe fills the temple as a symbol of honor in the same way that a bride's, uh, a bride has a train on her dress on her day of honor. God's robe is his honor, and the angels are crying holy, and we're told that they actually cover their face. They cover their face. Why? Because God's holiness is not safe for them. They must be shielded from it. In Isaiah 6, we see Isaiah come into contact with this, and what's his response? He cries, woe to me. He sees himself as very small, very defiled before the holiness of God. In Exodus 30, another familiar story, Moses asks the Lord to see his glory, and God says, I can't show you my glory in full. It's not safe for you. God hides Moses in a rock, which points us to Christ, the true rock that took the full weight of God's glory. But he hides him in a rock, and he says, I'm going to pass by you, and I'll show you my back. And verse 20 of Exodus 30 says, You cannot see my face. No one may see me and live. That's a big statement. You can't look at God and live in his holiness. God is holy. See, holiness is good, but it's not safe for anything or anyone that is unholy or impure. Impurity can't take the heat of holiness. It's like a a dry leaf entering a flaming inferno, a furnace. Holiness is like electricity. It's beautiful and life-giving and good and useful. When treated with the wise reverence, it demands, but it becomes dangerous and destructive to those who don't respect its power and presence. I think of C.S. Lewis's words in in Lion, the Lich, and the Wardrobe when Mr. Beaver speaks to uh, little Lucy. The, the, The Christ character in Lewis's novel is Aslan, and he's a lion, and he represents Christ. And he's, listen to this. Lucy's about to meet Aslan. She says, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion, 
Oh, I'm sorry. I called her Lucy. It's Susan. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Church, our our Savior, our God, is not a safe God. He's not a tame God. He's not not a, a, a soft God, but he is a good God. In Leviticus chapter 10, this is the last one I'll do. In Leviticus chapter 10, there's a more remote story in Scripture. There's two sons of Aaron, and they're named Nadab and Abihu, and they're priests. They serve in the temple before God. It's what the priests did in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God's presence dwelled not in his people through the Holy Spirit, but literally in the temple through the Ark of the Covenant. And all throughout the first chapters of Leviticus, Leviticus, uh, detailed instructions are given on how to build and prepare the temple because God's presence is going to come and fill the temple and dwell for the first time with his people in the temple at the Ark of the Covenant. And so God says, prepare it for me. Get it ready. And they go to painstaking detail to get it ready. And for the first time in Leviticus 10, God's presence comes as they make the offering on the altar. Smoke fills the temple as God's presence comes. And we read that fire comes down from heaven and consumes the burnt offering that they laid on the altar. This is a big moment in Scripture. This is God's presence coming to fill the temple for the first time. And all, we read, everyone there, the whole nation of Israel saw this and they were amazed at God's holiness falling in the temple and they fall down, face down, the scripture says, face down and shout for joy and awe for God's presence. But then we see Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who are priests, and we read that they take their censers, the tool with which a priest would have ministered, and they offer what's what's called in Leviticus 10, unauthorized fire, contrary to God's command on the altar. What's going on here is, I'd imagine they've seen the firefall. That's really awesome. We're priests. Let's get in on this action. We want to be a part of what's going on here. And so, Without the proper reverence for God, outside of the commands he's given for how he is to be worshipped and approached, they take their censers and they enter the temple and they offer fire, unauthorized fire, contrary to his commands. And we read in Leviticus 10 that both of them are consumed, that God's fire comes out from the presence of the Lord and they're consumed and they die. What happens there? What's going on? Well, God had given detailed instructions on how the Israelite priests were to consecrate themselves, specific instructions on how his holy presence was to be approached, how he was to be worshipped. Why? As a form of protection, because God loved them and he knew that his holiness was not safe for them. But Aaron's sons took that lightly, and they became like leaves in a furnace before the holiness of God. His holiness just was what it was. Leviticus 10.3, Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. I wanted to share this story because there is a hyperlink in scripture, if you could imagine it, between that story and Acts chapter 5. They are parallel accounts. They share so many similarities. In Acts 5, in Leviticus 10, God's holy presence comes for the first time to fill the place it dwelled at that time, the temple. And we see the gravity of that holiness and what it demands as two priests, Aaron's sons, die. And in Acts 5, a similar account, God's presence in the New Testament no longer dwells in the Ark of Covenant, no longer dwells in a temple. At Pentecost, we saw that uh, in the same way fire fell on the altar at Pentecost, tongues of fire come over the uh, disciples. And this is to, to visualize, among other things, the reality that God's presence is moving. It's changing addresses. It's no longer going to dwell in a temple. In the New Testament, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, where the veil was torn once and for all, where the way was made open between God and man. God comes to dwell in his people. That same holy fire now dwells through the presence of the Holy Spirit in his people. The people, we, me, you, the early church, have become the temple of God. He's made us his temple. And, and here we see 
Ananias and Sapphira, just like Nadab and Abihu, making the mistake of not taking seriously the holy presence of God in a moment that mattered. By their sin, they took lightly God's holiness, which was powerfully, manifestly working and present in a way that it has never before or way after been in that early church. This was God's place of dwelling. It was a holy place. It was an important place. At the inauguration of God's manifest presence coming to dwell with his people in his church through the Holy Spirit in Acts 5, we see just how awesome and amazing and serious a privilege it is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And God chooses in his sovereignty to make an example, a reminder to us this moment that he is not to be taken lightly, that his spirit in us is powerful, that it's holy, and that it should be treated with the utmost reverence. See, God's spirit was uniquely, it was intimately manifest in the early church. It never has been before, never has been since. In order that the church, through the divine presence, the filling of the Holy Spirit, might take root and grow. If God's presence hadn't supernaturally empowered and enabled and filled this church with grace, we might not be here today because God used the early church to establish every church after it. And God knew that the church needed to be a place of integrity. And so God, in this moment, takes this cancer of sin seriously. He creates reverence for himself. He creates fear out of this moment. And what we're going to see here is that contrary to our probably innate instincts, this actually empowers the mission of the church. Verse 11, we read in response to the death of Ananias and Sapphira for their sin, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these events. Great fear. Now, I'm tempted to think in this moment, you may be as well. Well, that was a good run. That was a good run, church. Great few weeks, but uh, people are going to start packing their bags. God's, God's offing people. Like, it's been good, but I'm not safe here. I'm out of here. But that's not what happens. We read that great fear sees the church in verse 11. But verse 14, nevertheless, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. The mission of God goes forward. See, there is a good kind of fear in the Christian life. There is a productive kind of fear. There is a necessary kind of fear. It is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a good and right reverential awe. It's not necessarily a terror. It's a reverence and awe at who God is, and at the reality that a God of that kind of glory, of that kind of holiness, of that kind of might, would choose to draw near in intimacy through his Son to forgive us, welcome us, cover us in his righteousness so that we can stand before him, as Hebrew says, with unveiled faces beholding his glory. This produces in us a reverence and awe for God. And it's a good, needed kind of fear. It's a fear that will erase every other fear from your life. When you fear God truly and meaningfully, you know that there's nothing else to be afraid of. And we'll see that this kind of fear, this reverence, protects the church, and it protected the church from Satan's attacks from within. It set the church apart. It made it a pure place for God's holy purposes. And that set-apart nature of the church empowered the mission of the church. And this is the pattern that happened in Acts. And when revival comes in our day, this is still the pattern that it's going to follow. We read, interestingly, in chapter 9, verse 31 of Acts, that this fear stuck and it empowered the mission. Chapter 9, verse 31, listen to this. The church throughout all Judea and now and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, going on in what? Going on in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, follow follow with me. The fear of the Lord purifies the church. Purity enables the church to be a place of God's holy presence. And when the church enjoys the presence of God, it empowers the church. It fills the church with power for missional impact. If we want power, we need the fear of God. Because 
we will have the fear of God. That fear of God will purify us from within. That purity will enable the presence of God to dwell with us intimately. It will make us distinct. It will make us a people set apart for God's holy purposes. And through presence, we will have a testimony to the watching world that is powerful. And God's spirit will do awesome things through us. We will see salvation coming. We will see God honoring prayers prayed from hearts that love him and fear him. The necessary ingredient for a powerful mission is the fear of the Lord. They're connected, and they can't be dissected. This early church was distinct. It was set apart. It was a place of presence. God is protecting it. He's uprooting cancer. In verse 15 and 16, we see the, see the final result. This is awesome. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered, crowds gathered also from towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits. And all of them were healed. We see the church moving in power. We see the mission going forward. Church, if we want power, we need presence. If we want presence, we need purity. And if we want purity, we need the fear of the Lord. If we want power, we need presence. If we want presence, we need to be set apart. We need to be pure. And if we want purity, we need the fear of the Lord. It's this. Okay. I want to land the plane by reminding us of something this morning. Because this is a text that could so easily, our sinful hearts could take it and run with it and start serving God out of fear, start trying to be good, start trying to be better than Ananias and Sapphira to avoid that. We could take the fear of God in an unhealthy sense and, and not experience his love and his mercy and his grace represented to us in Christ Jesus. So I want to end by reminding us this morning of the gospel that this story fits into. The central message of Christianity that makes it distinct from every other world religion is that Christianity does not say do. It does not say work for your salvation. It says receive your salvation. It does not say do, but it says done. We rest in what Jesus accomplished for us. And what we need to take away most in this story is not a resolve to go out and be better than Ananias and Sapphira or Nadab and Abihu. What we need most is to recognize that we are just like them and worse already. We've already that's already been settled. But then we need to be pulled out beyond looking at ourselves and see that rather than punishing us as God chose to in this specific circumstance, God has chosen to shower us with grace and mercy and cover us in the righteousness of his son. See, this, this concept of justice and holiness is not a fringe theme in the scripture. It's at the very center. At the center of the narrative of scripture is a cross that shows us decisively how serious God is about justice and holiness and dealing with sin. There is nowhere in Scripture where we see just how serious God is about sin than at the cross. At the cross, Jesus became a sacrifice on our behalf. He who was perfect took on himself the full weight of my sin and your sin. He became the mediator that would stand between us and God as our advocate with a paid in full receipt by his life and death in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What we need to see this morning is that Jesus fell for us in the same way Ananias and Sapphira did. He became sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God and stand before a holy God without the wrong kind of fear, with a reverence, but not a terror. Grace is free. Grace is free. It's bought by Christ. It's free, but it was not cheap to buy. It was not cheap for him. Satisfying the justice of a holy God towards sin was no easy feat. It cost Jesus so much that we will spend eternity worshiping and searching the depths of the price he paid on the cross, praising the lamb who was slain, and we will find no bottom to his glory for the price he paid to save us from our sin. Church, the gospel is simply that God makes us holy by faith in what Christ did, not what we have done.
So rest yourself in that this morning and let your fear be a reverential awe, not a terror. Run towards God who loves you, who forgives you, who's demonstrated his love in Jesus. But take these two responses with you. Maybe there's some of us this morning who need to confess and repent of some sin in our lives. Not to earn our salvation, but for the sake of our joy in Christ, for the sake of the integrity of our church. Sin is slavery. Sin is joyless in the life of a Christian. Sin makes light of the cross. Sin hurts me. It hurts you. Sin hurts others. That's why James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. When we put our sin in the light, we are healed. And we can enjoy the presence of God in our lives again. Confession and repentance. Listen to this. Confession and repentance. Take the sin that had me living in fear and shame, and they transform it into a catalyst for new joy and deeper growth in Jesus. Why? Because when we confess and repent, God is faithful to forgive us our sins. He meets us with grace and forgiveness. And as we experience the mercy and forgiveness, our joy in Christ is increased and pushed forward. And that leads us into our second response. May we be a church that is marked by gospel joy and gratitude for our forgiveness. And may that joy in the gospel, that love, be the propellant towards Jesus in our lives, towards holiness, towards being that place that is so set apart for God's purposes that his presence can truly abide with us in a significant way that pushes us forward in power to fulfill the mission he has put before us in this city that desperately needs his son and his gospel that is drowning in joyless godlessness. See the holiness of God this morning. See the seriousness of your sin and see the grace of your Savior. Confess and repent and move forward in gospel joy, church. Love you. Thank you for tracking through this difficult text with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that it does not return void, that it was written in its entirety, every last word for our good, for our edification. Thank you for the purity that your early church demonstrated. Thank you for the presence that they enjoyed through their purity, the purity you gave them. And thank you for the power they had to spread your gospel forward to the ends of the earth. It's why we're here today. God, make us that kind of church and make us a church marked by confession, repentance, and gospel joy on the other side of it. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.